Well, we've been walking through the last couple of weeks this uh, book of Revelation. Uh, I hope that you have with you the book. How many of you have the book with you? How many of you do not have a copy of this book? And so ushers, if you would, wherever you are in the room, if you could grab a couple and bring them down, that'd be awesome. Uh, We're walking through the book of Revelation. And obviously, we're in a time today where we desperately need to know the truth of God's Word. Uh, Rod Dempsey and I were talking just before the service of like, like going back in years past, like we were at a place where there was so much uh, conversation and confusion and conspiracy theories of like, man, that really couldn't happen. Like that, that's just made up. That's TV stuff. And yet now, here we are, walking at a time and a season where we're seeing all of this stuff happen, we're seeing it come to, to fruition, and we recognize and understand, like, man, this stuff's real. And that's why we're walking through this book this summer. Keep your hands raised, the guys are bringing those down, and certainly we'll hand those to you. Now, I want to recap, if we could, like the last couple of weeks that we've talked about. So in week one, we kind of went to Revelation chapter one, verses one through eight, and we got an introduction into what this book is all about. We talked about how it was written by the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos around 95 AD. By the way, I'd recommend, again, for all of you, men and women, like have your phones ready. Rarely will you hear a preacher say, hey, get your phones out in church. Okay, now I'm not going to send you to a QR code, but there are going to be a lot of things on the screen today that you might want to take a picture of for future reference, okay? So I'm just letting you know ahead of time. Also, you can follow along in the app if you have the TRBC app. All the notes are there. It's all footnoted. Everything's there that you can reference to. Or you can go to our website at trbc.org sermons, and you can find all of our notes there so you can go back and look at them later as well. But we were in chapter 1, and we talked about John's vision, how he was given this great privilege of a revelation that comes directly from Jesus Christ, revealed this directly to uh, John as a picture of what was going to happen. Last week in chapter 2, we talked about uh, this idea of this message that Jesus gave to the seven churches. We talked about how these seven churches were uh, given a, a performance review. Or you remember Matt talked about that very thing, and he walked through uh, lots of different ways that those performance reviews were given. And I encourage you, if you didn't, if you weren't here or didn't have a, a chance to hear that message, go back at, again, trbc.org slash sermons and watch that sermon from last week, a great message to the church, which by the way, was to seven churches that existed 2,000 years ago, but make no mistake, to us as well. And so I want to make sure that we have the opportunity of like seeing exactly what it is that God wants us to get. Now, today we move into chapters 4 through 7 and the first verse of chapter 8. And here, John is introduced and he's invited into the throne room of God to have the opportunity of having a conversation, of seeing and hearing the things that are taking place. He has the opportunity of of recognizing uh, this, this story of the tribulation season that's about to begin. The story that is about to take place and unveiling, uh, he is given this opportunity of seeing things of what was going to come thousands of years later. We don't know when that time is. We don't know when that day is. But today we begin the process of walking through what do those days look like. And so this is a picture of where we've been over the last two weeks and where we'll be today. Each week we'll give you again a recap of where we've been and where we're going so you have a a clear picture. We want you to walk out of this summer truly understanding what does the book of Revelation say. Now, today as we walk into this, we're going to begin this opportunity of seeing exactly what it is that John is given. Because John now, having had the opportunity of hearing the message to the churches, having had the opportunity of uh, of being invited into this conversation back in chapter 1, now he gets the opportunity of being a a front row, he gets a front row seat uh, in heaven of the picture of what God is going to do and what God has promised and the great hope that God gives. And so we start the story today where John is invited into the throne room. Now, if you go to John, uh, Revelation chapter 4, and we're going to read in verse 1, it says, after these things, after what things? After the messages to the churches, after these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, come up here, and I will show you things which must, must take place after this. Now, this verse very clearly is a picture of John. He heard this word. 
It says he arrived there, he behold, and there's a door. If you go back into the book of John, Jesus himself said, I am the door. And so here, John has the opportunity of walking into this situation where he sees and he hears the voice of Jesus like a trumpet saying, come up here and I will show you the things which must take place after this. Now here, what we are given in chapter 4 is we're given a beautiful picture, a beautiful description of not only what is, but what will be. We're given this picture of what God is going to give. Now in verse 2, in the first part of verse 2, John goes on to write this, and he says, instantly I was in the Spirit. Now this is kind of a, a statement of what Paul experienced back in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when he was taken up into the third heaven and he was given a vision, seeing something that mere mortals, men, women cannot see. John also had the opportunity of seeing here what is not given, what is not to be seen. And so he says, instantly I was in the Spirit. Now when we walk to this point, we, we're given the picture, John hears a voice, John's invited into the throne room of God, which is a pretty amazing thing if you think about it. He is invited into this place, he's given a front row seat of seeing what is taking place, but the first question that we have to ask ourselves is, what did he see? And so we actually went and I found a, a photograph that is from a church that is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, cathedral down in Mexico. It's a, a painting that is a beautiful image, a beautiful picture of what this looks like, of what we're going to see. Now is it a perfect representation? No, but it's better than I could do. Uh, if I drew it, it'd be a bunch of little stick figures that you wouldn't be able to figure out what it looks like. But this is a beautiful picture of what we're going to begin talking about in chapter 4. And so I'm going to keep that image up on the screens. I encourage you to reference, take a picture of it if you like. And we're going to walk through what did John see. And the first thing that John saw was a perfect representation of the doctrine, the theology of the Trinity. So what did he see? Well, first he saw God sitting on the throne. Look in the second part of verse 2. It says, and behold, this is page 16, by the way, in your booklet. Uh, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. This is an image, a picture of God the Father. You see in this image here, sitting right in the middle there, you see God sitting on his throne. The reference that's given here, there are two stones that were that, that describe this image. Those uh, stones were jasper and sardius. Gordon Fee says it this way, that these are the first and the last of the twelve stones mentioned in the description of the breastplate of the high priest and that both of them are red. And so from Exodus chapter 28 we get the picture that what we see here truly is the image of the ultimate high priest. We see God the Father sitting on His throne. It says that it was like a rainbow that was around the throne. Now, this is not a rainbow. I know it's June, it's Pride Month in certain places, I get it. This is not like the representation of that. In fact, this is God recovering what He created, which is the rainbow. And this is God sitting on His throne, and He's sitting here, and He is obviously in authority and in power, and He's in control, and everything is in His hands. Make no mistake, today, no matter how crazy the world might be, the entire world and everything and everyone in it is in the hand and under the authority of God the Father. Make no mistake, God is sitting on His throne. And so he saw God sitting on the throne, but then he also saw the Holy Spirit. Let's continue reading in verse 5, page 18. It says, And seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, you look at this picture and you'll see right below where God is sitting, right below His feet there on the throne, you'll see that there are seven pots there, seven lamps there with fire. And that is a representation of the Holy Spirit of God. Now, this is not a representation, it's not a picture of like what goes back to what uh, Matt talked about last week in chapters 2 and 3. In fact, Paige Patterson said this, these are to be distinguished from the lamps as they reflected the churches in chapters 2 and 3, but are like the seven spirits of chapter 1 verse 4, and indeed according to the text are the seven spirits of the Holy Spirit presented in His fullness, the Spirit of God is clearly in view. So the Holy Spirit is represented in this photo. But 
in this image, that, that this picture that John was given. But not only that, John was also seeing not only God the Father and God the Spirit, but he also saw God the Son. He saw Jesus the Lamb. And you don't need to turn there. We're going to come to there in a few moments. But in chapter 5, verse 6, it's John said, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and having seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now, that's a picture of Jesus, the Son of God. It says that he had seven horns and seven eyes, kind of a weird picture. But when you think about it in the context of biblical dialogue and biblical explanation, a horn is something that always conveys power. If you go back into Ezekiel's prophecy, it talked about how the, the ten horns represented the ten kings. In other words, they were an authority over leadership, over countries, over nations. All through the, the uh, Old Testament and the New Testament, when we talk about uh, the horns that were represented, the horns that we're talking about, it always represented power. And so, what is saying here is that Jesus had seven horns, and that was the perfect number, perfect power. He was omnipotent, all-powerful, and then had seven eyes. That's kind of a weird thought, isn't it? But that's a symbol of the omniscience of God. That God is all-knowing. And you'll see here, right in front of God the Father, in between God the Father and God the Spirit, the seven lamps that are in front, you'll see there's a lamb in this image, the lamb in this picture, which represents Jesus Christ. What John saw was a picture of the Trinitarian view of God, that God is one, represented in three people, but He is one. And this is a beautiful picture of that. Kendall easily said this, although John had heard about a lion, what he saw instead was a lamb standing obviously very much alive. Surely only under divine inspiration would the conquering powerful victor of the universe be portrayed as a lamb as if he had been slain. And by the way, if Jesus were not portrayed as a lamb that was slain, then there would be no hope at all because the Bible says without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins. Jesus had to die in order to redeem. And so that's the picture. But what else did John see in this throne room of God in chapter 4. On page 18, we see this. He saw the 24 elders. In verse 4 of chapter 4, around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. Now, what does that represent? You'll see in this image again, the 24 elders that are seated, 12 on each side. There are lots of different theories of who these people are. Some say that it's, you know, that these are angelic creatures, that they're angels. Some would say that they're other uh, different people. Some would say, and I hold to this view, that these are representatives of the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Old Testament leaders of Israel and the New Testament leaders of church. That's what I believe. Uh, It's a picture of the, the 12 tribes of Israel and also the 12 apostles. I believe that these are represented by the 12 apostles. Minus one, because obviously Judas is not seated there in the throne room of God. I believe, and the Bible bears this out, that the, the apostle that was replaced, um, that replaced Judas was not necessarily Matthias because he was chosen by man, but rather God chose Paul as an apostle. So I believe it's the 11 original disciples plus Paul that is seated here. And so you have a representation of Old Testament people of God and the New Testament people of God. And that is what we see there that are surrounding the throne there in the presence of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In other words, what these 24 elders are doing is they're repping the redeemed. They're representing you and me. What a beautiful picture that is. Harold Wilmington. Matt's dad said this, some suggest that the 24 elders who reappear several times in John's vision were angelic beings. Others believe they may have been a representative body of Old Testament, New Testament saints. This latter view is suggested by the fact that the Greek word for their crowns, which we talked about, is Stephanos, used elsewhere in the New Testament to describe the crowns or the rewards of victorious believers. So in other words, they received their crowns of glory, their crowns for their work on this earth as they arrived there and they went through the period of being in the presence of God. And so I believe this does indeed represent the Old Testament and New Testament, Israel and the church, the people of God, that they're there. Now this is a good place to interject just a quick moment here that this is also a picture of, and we're going to talk about this later. We don't need to get into it today. We're going to talk about this a little bit later in this series about how the rapture will take place prior to the tribulation. 
Now, that's a, a pre-tribulational picture, image of the rapture. There are good people, good godly people who disagree uh, with me and disagree with our church, disagree with my dad, disagree with Harold Wilmington and Matt and others, uh, who would say that the, the rapture happens either in the middle of the tribulation or at the end of the tribulation or doesn't happen at all. But I believe there's very clear reference and very clear pictures that we're going to see and we're going to talk about that would lend itself to us for us to believe that indeed that the rapture is going to take place prior to the tribulation, prior to what we're going to begin talking about today, and that we will actually be in the presence of God that will be there. In fact, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, when it talks about the rapture, it uses that Greek word herpazo, which is like literally like a snatching up or a catching up of his church. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, uh, it talks about how that, that Jesus is going to, to come, uh, in chapter 4, come for the church, and in chapter 3, it talks about how He's going to come with the church at the second coming of Christ, which happens at the end of the seven-year tribulation period. But again, that's a discussion for another day, but it needs to be said here as we begin walking through we're going to be walking through in chapters 5 and 6. So. He saw the 24 elders. He saw the four living creatures, and you'll see them there uh, surrounding the throne, the kind of the weird looking, uh, you know, kind of uh, futuristic looking creatures there. Verse 6, it says, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. Now, these are also referenced, and there's probably some correlation between what Ezekiel saw in his prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 1, that these are seraphim, they're cherubim, they're, they're, they're angelic creatures that were there. Their eyes are there, obviously, to talk about the omniscience of God, also to convey the idea of that they're to protect. In fact, Bob Bonheim, one of our members here at Thomas Road, he wrote a book back in the early 2000s called The Revelator. And in that book, he says this, and I think he gives a very clear and a very good picture here. The prophet Ezekiel wrote about his vision for the four beasts, or as he identified them as the four cherubs, who were responsible to protect the holiness of God as they were stationed around the throne. And you can see them in this image that's there. But when you talk about the throne room of God, we see this picture that he sees the Trinity, he sees the 24 elders, he sees the, the, the four living creatures, but what he really experiences is not what he sees, but what he hears, because there was nothing but worship. Nothing but worship in the throne room of God. Verses 9 through 11. Whenever the living creatures, those four living creatures, give glory and honor and thanks to Him, capital H, who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne, and they worship Him who lives forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things, and by Your will they exist, and they were created." In other words, the throne room of God is a picture, which by the way, we're going to experience for all of eternity, that the throne room of God is nothing but a place of absolute, absolute, ultimate, incredible worship. There will never be a time when we're in the presence of God where our hearts, where our minds are not fixed and focused on worship of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, He who is worthy to sit on the throne. Now, let's move to chapter 5. Turn over to page 20. In chapter 5, we're still in the throne room, and we're still in the throne room, but now we're introduced into a, an experience, another experience that John has, and he has the opportunity of seeing. In verse 1, it says, and I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, in the hand of God the Father, he says, I saw him uh, in his hand, a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now, what he saw was something like this. He saw something like a scroll that had seven wax seals placed upon that scroll. This is a, a paper last night that Nicholas and Abby and I, my son Nicholas and his wife Abby and I, we said it, and for about 45 minutes it took us to actually seal these, mainly because we messed up a bunch. We had to do it over and over and over again. But this is kind of the picture of what we see here in Revelation chapter 5. Now, what's the significance of a scroll with seven seals? Well, when you go back in Roman history, you go back and look at like the uh, Caesar Augustus or uh, Vespasian or, or Claudius, we see a picture that in Roman history, in Roman law, that when they left a will or a testament, when someone of power left their last will and testament, it had to be sealed seven times. 
And the seals were not all by the same person. One seal would be from the person who wrote the will. The second seal would be for the executor of that will. And then they had to have five witnesses that saw them seal that document. And then they placed their seals on the document. So it had seven seals. And if it did not have seven seals, it was not considered to be authentic. And so when that person died, the executor and the witnesses would show up and they would take this document that they had not read because it was secret what was on the inside. They only witnessed the sealing of it and they would come and each person would have to break open their seal to reveal which was on the inside. And so you get a picture here of why that's significant, why this story is given. And why is it this document is so important? Well, Warren Wiersbe says this, it's the scroll represents Christ's title deed to all that the Father promised him because of his sacrifice on the cross. In other words, God giving to his son what his son had redeemed, had paid for, he was giving him the rights to all of creation. Robert Montz said this, filled to overflowing and sealed with seven seals, To ensure the secrecy of his decrees, it contains the full account of what God in his sovereign will has determined as the destiny of the world. In other words, it is the picture, the story, the deed, and the will of everything that is to come and everything that exists, sealed with seven seals. And so then we see John having the opportunity of watching God the Father sitting upon that throne that we saw a few moments ago. And he's sitting there, and he's holding this in his hands, but then something happens that is remarkable. Because then the question comes up, who is worthy? In verses 2 and following, it says, Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. Now, this is an important statement in verse 4 when he says, so I wept much. Why did John weep that no one was able to open the scroll? Because of what we just talked about, of what the scroll contained, the title deed, God's plan, God's picture for all of the universe and all of creation and all that is to come, that no one was worthy to open it. Basically, why he wept, why he cried, was that there was no opportunity to experience the hope that only God can give because no one could open the will. No one could open the document. But hang on, because we're not done. Because then we see the next statement in verses 5 and 6, only one is worthy. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. There was no one worthy in heaven, under the heaven, below the heavens, below the earth, that was worthy to open the scroll except for one, the lion of the tribe of Judah the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of all the world. Jesus Christ, the only one worthy to open the seals. And that's what that song was all about a few moments ago. The picture of only one is worthy. And so we continue to see in this passage that Jesus is sitting there, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, fulfilling Old Testament prophecies, the Lamb who was slain. Not only do we see that, but we see again in that image, that picture, the gold bowls that were there. It says in verse 8, now when he had taken the scroll, Jesus, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down. And as they fell down before him, before Jesus now holding the scroll, scroll, that each having a harp and a golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. This is a reference back to Psalm 141, where it says, let my prayer be set before you as incense. The lifting up of my hands is the evening sacrifice. In other words, that every prayer that you have prayed, are praying, and will pray is sweet incense aroma to God, and it's as if it's sitting there in that bowl before the presence in the throne room of God. Make no mistake that when you pray to God today, your prayers do not go unheard, that they are like incense in the throne room of God. That's a pretty cool picture, isn't it? And then we hear in the throne room, worthy is the Lamb. 
And they sang a new song, verse 9, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, that's millions, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. It's interesting now that in the throne room of God where we saw God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, in the throne room of God where we saw the 24 elders and the four living creatures, that now we see millions of others that are there, which again I believe points back to the picture, a a pre-tribulational rapture of the church, that we are all there and all that we can do is sing the words of this song, worthy is the Lamb who was slain that we're sitting in the throne room of God. And so, Jesus now has the scroll in His hands. And then we move to verse, or chapter 6 on page 22 in your your notebook if you have it, or in your Bible, it's chapter 6 of Revelation. And this represents the seven years of tribulation which will usher in the second coming of Christ. This story that we begin right now in chapter 6, it will take us through uh, numbers of weeks. Because it's a, it's a continual unveiling or unrolling of what the tribulation period and the judgment of God looks like as we walk through this picture. Now we begin to see what these seals represent. And so let's go to the first seal, chapter 6, verse 2. And it says, And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. You see this picture here, that he came on a white horse. Can somebody yell out to me, just like, who do you think is sitting on the white horse? Who? Jesus. How many people said Jesus? Yeah, you're wrong. Because remember now, this is a picture of the tribulation. This is a picture of God's judgment upon this earth for seven years. Jesus has already raptured His church, and Jesus is now in heaven with His church, the bride of Christ, waiting until the end of the tribulation period to return and to come back with His church to conquer Satan and all the demons of hell. So then, let's go back then. So who might this be on the white horse? Well, it's the counterfeit Christ. It's the Antichrist. It's the Antichrist coming to conquer, and this verse very clearly tells us that he is given a a bow and a crown which was given to him, that he went out to conquer and and to destroy. That is what his responsibility is. And so he arrives on the scene in this first seal that is loosed by Jesus, and the picture is this, a white horse, the counterfeit Christ, because Jesus is depicted on a white horse, a white horse later, and we'll talk about that. He arrives and he comes to conquer. The second seal shows up. Verse 4, and another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people, and the people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. Now, this rider who came in on the red horse comes to remove peace from the earth. In other words, he comes to begin this process of destruction. We've talked about it. Jesus said there'll be wars and rumors of war, and this horse, this rider comes in to give us a picture of what that looks like, that people will kill one another, that widespread destruction will take place all across the face of the earth through war and through shedding of blood. And then Jesus looses the third seal. And as he does, it, John says, so I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. Anybody confused? Like, this is part of the picture of why we get so confused sometimes reading Scripture. Because you can read that, if you take that just at its words, like, okay, what's he talking about? Scales? Wheat, a denarius, barley, oil, wine, like what are they, cooking? Like is this a, you know, is this a Gordon Ramsay show in, in the middle of Revelation? No, it's not at all. What this is, is a writer who shows up to give a picture of widespread famine on the earth. He gives the picture here, he comes with scales. In other words, the picture, and that's how they did it back then, they didn't have cash registers back then, that when you went to buy things, they, they weighed things out to make sure that you were getting an equal value of what you were buying versus what you were paying for, to make sure everything was equal, right? So he shows up with scales in his hands, and then the voice says, a quart of wheat for denarius. Now, this is a quart. This is a, a 32-ounce Yeti. 
okay? And inside of it's Diet Coke. Hold on. I brought this up as a prop, but man, it's good. It's worked out pretty well. It's kind of nice when you get an illustration you can actually enjoy, right? This is good. And so, so a quart of wheat for a denarius. Now, a denarius, the Bible tells us, is one day's wage. A day's wage. And so what it tells us then is that to get this much food within the rapture period, the seven-year tribulation, not the rapture, the seven-year tribulation, to get this much food, it's going to take you a whole day's wage. Now, just think for a moment, don't yell it out, obviously, like how much you make. So how much you make in a year, multiply it by 365. And that number that you come up with in your head is the number of what in that day, in the tribulation period, it will cost you to be able to eat just like this much wheat. Now, it goes on to say three quarts of barley for denarius. Now, that's an important distinction because wheat is obviously a much higher value, higher quality of, of food than barley. And so it tells us that you'll be able to get three quarts for a denarius or a day's wage or one quart of wheat for a day's wage. But it's also interesting in the midst of this famine that through the famine, hold on. It's here, I got to use it. In this famine, that there will be more and more death as a cause, a result of this famine. But it's also an interesting statement because it says, but do not harm the oil and the wine. Now, what that's a picture of, again, going back to first century, it goes back to a picture of the great distinction between the rich and the poor, the wealth gap, right? And so this is a picture that in the tribulation period, that gap is going to be greater and greater and greater, a greater divide between the rich and the poor. We're seeing that even today. We're seeing people today who are worth hundreds of billions of dollars. And then we're seeing other people today who can't even buy food for the day. That's going to continue to widen, which what's going to happen there? What's going to happen there? Revolt. What's going to happen there? Destruction. What's going to happen there? There are going to be some people who have and many, many people who have not, which again begins to continue to divide the people. And this is a picture of what this, this horse depicts, this widening gap of poverty and, and, and rich and how this, this famine will come as destruction. Then the fourth seal. Verse 8, so I looked and behold a pale horse, a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was death and Hades followed with him, and power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. Now, what does this fourth seal depict? It depicts death on a monumental scale. Now, let's just do some math. How many like math? (laughs) You're like me. I don't like math. But let's do some math, right? So right now, today, on this earth, Today, 8 billion people live on the earth today. Now, some studies show and some research tells us that there are about, this again, it's a guess, nobody knows except for God, that there are about 2.6 billion Christians on the earth today, okay? So let's just say now, we go back, the rapture takes place, First Thessalonians chapter 4, and so let's say 2.6 billion people are taken up, right? So that leaves us about 5.4 billion people on the earth, correct? Something like that, right? So 5.4 billion people then will then, if it were today, If it were today, the longer it goes, the more people, but today, 5.4 billion people will enter into the seven-year tribulation. Now, in this fourth seal, we've been given the picture that in that 5.4 billion, that this horse, death and Hades, that the power of death over one-fourth of the earth will be given to them through wars, bloodshed, uh, poverty, famine, and the beast of the earth, like literally widespread destruction. Which means that one-fourth of 5.4 billion is about 1.35 billion people. So in this season now of 2.6 billion people in heaven, 5.4 billion people remain. Obviously the confusion and the, the chaos that takes place that that many people are now gone to heaven as a result of the rapture. And now 1.3 plus billion more people are killed through all of these different things in this picture. Now, if you go over to Revelation chapter 9, we're going to be talking about that next week. Another one-third of the world's population are killed, which is about another 1.3 billion. So in the seven-year tribulation period, Over, if it were today, these numbers reflect today, over 2.6 billion people will be killed through the work of the Antichrist and his demons of the work that will take place during that seven years. 2.6 plus billion people will be killed. You can see when you talk about the word tribulation, the word tribulation doesn't do it justice of what will take place. Now let's move on. The fifth seal. 
We come to the fifth seal, and this one's a little bit different because this one's the cry of the martyrs. In verse 9, it says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar of souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they had held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. Now, this picture, this scene that is given here is a vision of the martyrs, and the martyrs are these, those who've come to Christ during the tribulation period. There will be people who come to Christ during the tribulation period. We're going to talk about that in a moment out of chapter 7. They will come to Christ. And John's given a vision of those people who were killed, probably part of those 2.6 billion people that I talked about a moment ago, whose lives were destroyed through war and bloodshed and famine and beasts of the earth, all of those kinds of things. 2.6 billion people. And here, the ones who had accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior during that seven-year tribulation period, now here they are crying out to God, how long, God, are you going to let those people on earth do what they're doing? And God says, just hold on. Just hold on. Everything's in my control. In fact, we keep reading this passage in verses, I'm sorry, if we keep reading in that passage, it goes on to tell us that in this story, that these martyrs who were killed, that they're given that white robe. And it's interesting, the distinction, the statement that's given, and it tells us there uh, that that these white robes that are given, that it tells them that they they take them and and they, they wash them white as snow in the blood of the Lamb. Isn't that interesting? That they take white robes and they make them white as snow by washing them in red blood. You ever try to do that at home? It doesn't work. But that tells you the power of the blood. And so we're given this picture of the, the martyrs that, that, that came. Now the sixth seal. The sixth seal is comic, cosmic disturbances. Verses 12, I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it was rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave, every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountain, and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, Jesus, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Now, when you read the Bible in a literal sense rather than in a figurative, a symbolic stance, you read this picture, and what you see is like something that's hard to grasp. But yet, when you begin to see the idea of earthquakes and tsunamis and uh, tornadoes and uh, heat and, and cold and all of the things that are taking place, like, like we see a picture here, like it's possible. And then you add to it the idea of the potential of nuclear weapons that are constantly being threatened. In fact, Paige Patterson says this, attempts by some modern interpreters to describe some sort of nuclear warfare producing a cloud that would blacken the sun's rays and make the moon appear red cannot be dismissed as impossible. In other words, what is to come is going to be something that we have never seen before. And then we come to chapter 7, verse, uh, page 26 in your notebook, and we get this picture of kind of a little of a pause here. A pause in this revelation where we get a picture of the sealed and the saved. In chapter 7, verses 1, it says, And after these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on this earth, on the sea, or on any tree. And then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. In other words, authority, power. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And so these angels are told, hold on, hold on, because something has to happen now. Now, what is it that has to happen? Well, first, the sealing of the 144,000. Verse 4, and I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Sealed. Now again, and I believe this again, we've got to take this in a literal sense, that in the tribulation period, there will be 144,000 Jewish people who come to Christ in that time, 12,000 from each tribe of Israel. In the, study, in the passage that you continue to read there, it lists off the different tribes of Israel, 12,000 from each. 
And you'll notice that Dan uh, is omitted from this list. Ephraim is omitted from this list. And that's purposeful because of the widespread idolatry that became part of those two tribes of Israel. And they're replaced with Joseph, obviously who he is, and Levi, which is the Levitical line. And it's going to be 12,000 from each that will be sealed, again, representing the Old Testament, right? The people of God. But listen to what it also says in verses 9 and 10, and also a great multitude. Page 28, after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number of all nations and tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, Thomas Long says this, nations in this statement does not mean nations in the modern sense of nation states, but something more like foreigners or tribes of people who are not at all like you, or to put it succinctly, Gentiles. So what's the picture we're given here? That in that seven-year tribulation period, there will be 144,000 Jews who come to Christ and who are redeemed and sealed by God, and there will be multitudes of others, we're not given the number, multitudes of others that are Gentiles who will also come to Christ during that tribulation period. This goes back to what we talked about a few moments ago. Many of them will lose their lives during this seven-year tribulation, but all will be given the promise of heaven and the promise of being in the presence of God for all eternity. The picture, and this is where we find in verse 14, after the question was asked, who are these that are arrayed in white robes? In verse 14, he said, sir, you know, so he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And so we see these six seals of destruction. These six seals of, of, of things that like are, are, are just unimaginable. All taking place in a very short period of time. Some scholars say that these six seals represent the first three and a half years of the tribulation. Others say it's a picture of the entire tribulation, but then there's more to add to it as we get into the trumpets and the bowls of judgment that will to come. But regardless of what it is, it's a picture that in a very short period, a season of time, in seven years, the widespread destruction will take place on this earth as Satan and all of his demons... The Antichrist and the false prophet will rise up and do everything that they possibly can for one last ditch effort at stopping the plans and the will of God. And so then in chapter 8 and verse 1, Jesus holds that scroll again. And it says, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Now that seventh seal was not actually a picture of what was going to happen in that moment. It's a picture that there's still much to come. And next week we're going to talk about what's next to come. Now I know I threw a lot of information out at you today. We talked about a lot of things, a lot of things that again are troublesome, maybe confusing. Difficult to follow, I get it. I encourage you, go back and get the notes. Watch the sermon again. It's all online, trbc.org slash sermons. But here's what I want to tell you. The only thing you need to know, listen to me, the only thing you really need to know about all of this is this. Is that if you are a person who has truly believed that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Everything that we've talked about today, it doesn't apply to you at all. Because before any of this takes place, we're going to hear that trumpet sound. Before any of this takes place, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the picture of what is given to us, that the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will rise. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. You don't have to worry about the suffering and the destruction and the death and the widespread calamities that we've read about today and we will read about in the days to come. You don't need to worry about it because Jesus is the one who came to save, to redeem, and to bring us into his presence. And all you have to do is believe. 
that Jesus is exactly who he said he was. So the question I have for you today in conclusion is just simply this. Do you believe? Do you believe? It matters. It matters. It matters for now. But do you think it matters for them? I wouldn't dare want to be in the crowd of people that when that 2.6 billion Christians are taken up and they disappear in an instant, of sitting around like, like wondering like what in the world just happened? All these people are gone. And then to see these horses starting to ride in and to start to see the destruction, trying to figure out where I'm going to eat, figuring out how I'm going to live. Like, I don't want to be a part of that. And it would leave me wanting and to know like, like, okay, so what do I do to escape that? And you don't have to figure out how to escape the apocalypse, so to speak. You don't have to go to Hollywood to figure out like, hey, man, how's the, what's the plan of getting out of all this? All you have to do is go to what Jesus himself gives to us in his word in Romans chapter 10, that if you believe that Jesus is the son of God, that he died and that he rose again, verse 13, anyone, anyone, you, me, every person on the face of the earth, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. Because it's real. And you might be sitting here today thinking, well, come on. I mean, that all sounds good. It sounds, you know, sensational and all that. I get all that, but man, I just don't really think it's real. I don't think that's all. I don't think that's a little. I I don't think that's going to happen. And let me just say this from from the bottom of my heart in, in the kindest way that I possibly can. That is a dangerous chance to take. Because if it is real, which I firmly believe that it is, and prophecies all through the Old Testament and the New have come to fruition already, if it's real, that it could happen today. And you would be left behind. Don't take that chance. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. God, thank you for even the dangers that you show in your word of what is to come, of revealing to John and ultimately to us the destruction that is sure. And God, while it can be unsettling, it can be scary, God, I rejoice today that for those of us who trust and believe that Jesus is your son, that he died and rose again, it's not scary to us at all. It's sad because we hate to see people go through what we've read today. But it's not scary for us because I know that I know that I know that I will be in the throne room of God and that I will be crying and singing those words, worthy is the lamb who was slain during every day of that seven days and every day after seven years. God, thank you that we have the hope that comes through Christ. And right now in this moment, if there's someone here who doesn't know you, I pray they would make that decision in this place. With our heads bowed, with our eyes closed, our team is gathered here. And today, for those of you seated in this room, there very likely could be, no, not very likely, there is someone in this room today who's never truly made that decision. I believe that with all my heart. I'm not saying that in some way to try to be prophetic. I'm not doing like one of those TV preachers. I'm not doing that at all. I just know this, in a crowd this large, thousands of people, I know there's probably someone in this room today, I believe with all my heart, who has never truly believed Jesus is the Son of God, that He died and rose again, and you've never experienced the gift of salvation. That I believe to be true. And everything that I've shared today is not just teaching for teaching's sake. Everything I've shared today ultimately is for you. For you to hear truth and for you to recognize there's hope so you can make a decision. And so right now in this moment, if you're seated here and you can't say for sure, like absolute, like there's no doubt that if that trumpet were to sound today and Jesus raptured his church, took us up, caught us up, snatched us up, Harpazzo took us up to heaven today and the tribulation started at 2.30 p.m. this afternoon. If you can't say for sure, I am in the group that would be taken up. 
If you can't say for sure, I won't have to experience that seven years. If you can't say that for sure, man, don't you dare walk out of this room without making sure. And our team is here, man. We would love, love, love to just take a moment with you today and share with you the hope that comes to Jesus. And so right now, I'm not even going to have you stand. I'm not going to have uh, the, the, the worship team lead us in a song. If you are here today and you're not 100% sure, like absolutely 100% sure, here's what I just want you to do. Wherever you are in the room, I want you to stand up right now and just come to the altar. Right now in this room, just stand up and come to this altar. I don't know who you are. I don't know where you are. You're probably seated there right now thinking, man, I don't want to get up in front of all these people. Let me tell you something. It'd be a lot better to get up in front of all these people than to be left behind after all these people are gone. Anybody at all in this room? Anybody at all? Okay. I'm going to pray a prayer. As I pray this prayer, if you're seated in that seat and you're like, man, I don't want to go, but I sure do need to, I'm going to pray this prayer for you. And I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer silently along with me right now, asking God to save you, which he will do if you believe and call on his name. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving me. I know I'm a sinner in need of a savior. I believe Jesus is the only one who can save me. So today, forgive me of my sins. I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I believe he rose again. I believe he is your son. The lamb who came to take away the sins of the world. Thank you, God, for saving me. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, we're going to end our service. Our team is going to stay right here. And as people are getting up and walking out, I encourage you to walk down, to come down to one of these men and women and just say, hey, I prayed that prayer. I want to know more about it. Now, if you want to come for any other reason, we're here. We'd love to talk with you. But if you made a decision to receive Christ, make that real today. Next week, go ahead and read ahead. Chapters 9, or chapter 8, all the way up to chapter 11. Start reading ahead if you'd like, and then we'll gather together next Sunday and continue walking through. If you want information about the Gideons, Johnny, Frank, and Larry were right down front. They'd love to talk with you. God bless you, and have a great, great day. Thank you for worshiping with us today. We're so glad you joined us. If you prayed to receive Christ today, we'd love to hear from you. We want to help you as you begin this new journey of faith in Jesus Christ. Send an email to the address on the screen, pastor at trbc.org. Likewise, if you've never accepted God's free gift of salvation, the forgiveness of sins made possible by the death and resurrection of Jesus, but you'd like to know more, we're here to help you. Just reach out to us and we'd love to tell you more. Our mission at Thomas Road is to change our world by developing Christ followers who love God and love people. If you'd like to help us fulfill that mission by giving to our ministry, go to the link on your screen and make your contribution today. Help us help others with the life-changing truth of God's love.